Welcome to Learning Minnesota, connecting people one conversation at a time. Today's guest is Mr. Mark Van Her, Executive Director of the Beautiful Mind Project. Mark received the 2019 Changemaker Award and was recently chosen as one of seven fellows statewide with the Initiative Foundation for his Urgent Care Mental Health Program. Mark, you know what? Let's talk. Okay. But, be but before we get into the nitty gritty, please do share a little bit um, about yourself, your story, and the Beautiful Mind Project. Absolutely. 18 years ago, uh, a four-year-old girl saved my life. I had written a suicide note, left it on the counter, and I grabbed a knife out of the butcher's block, and I grabbed my keys, and I went down to my truck, and I drove to a desolate parking lot where I was going to end my life. And as I was sitting there kind of collecting my, what I thought were going to be my final moments, uh, thoughts of my four-year-old daughter came into my, my head. And I began to think about what her life would be like uh, growing up without me in it. And for whatever reason, I, I put the knife back down and I drove back home. And uh, it would take actually another two years before I'd be properly diagnosed with bipolar disorder and put on medication and normal ever since, whatever, whatever that looks like. And uh, I, I lived my life in silence, basically, uh, for the better part of a decade. I, I never shared with really anybody uh, outside of my house that I had a mental illness uh, because I didn't want it to affect the way that people talked to me, treated me. I didn't want it to affect my career opportunities. Uh, all of that stigma that's uh, attached to it, um, I, I just I didn't want to deal with it. And five years ago, um, I was uh, diagnosed with diabetes. And the next day, I shared that on Facebook. Uh, I wanted to get ideas about, you know, uh, everything from diet and exercise and medication, uh, recipes, those types of things. And I got huge support. And it got me thinking, why did I share one diagnosis after 24 hours, but I didn't share my bipolar diagnosis for a decade? When if you think about it, they're really the the same thing uh, at their core. They're both chemical imbalances in the body that require medication for it to operate and function properly. They just affect different parts of the body. And so uh, that, that really started the wheels in motion. And what was sort of the tipping point for me was uh, I, I have two daughters now, and um, I always would tell them, you know, don't worry about what other people think. Just be yourself. Um, because the minute you start living your life for somebody else, it's no longer your life. And I, I tell you, I felt like a huge hypocrite because I wasn't doing that myself. And that's when I decided that it was time to take some action and come out, for lack of a better turn of phrase, uh, about my mental health, uh, about my mental illness, and share that uh, with others in the hopes that people would see that it's okay to talk about that, that people uh, just like me who live and work in our community and have businesses and uh, are respected, can be functioning members of society, even with a mental illness. And, and so that's why we kind of got things started. And so that's how we formed the, the Beautiful Mind Project. That's how it got started. That's awesome. I don't know if you noticed, I started to get a little teary-eyed. So I really appreciate that you, um, that you not only shared your story, but I think it really does make a connection with all of us who are either watching um, this or listening to this, that there are, um, there are so many of us out there that have stories and I'm not going to say similar, but that we, we feel somewhat ashamed in sharing or we're afraid that when we share, it's going to cause some sort of result that we don't want, whether it be impacting our um, profession or how it, how we are able to connect with others or how people maybe receive us anyway. Um, so thank you for all that you are doing and thank you as well for sharing your story um, with us too. So um, before we like uh, the first, I guess, thing that I would like to talk about is the difference between um, mental health and mental illness. But before we, we dive into that, I wanted to make sure too that um, those who are listening and or viewing understand that when we go into this conversation that we're going to have today um, on suicide prevention and mental health, that 
we are just touching the tip of a very, very large iceberg and that this conversation will um, you know, hopefully be able to broaden some awareness and plant that seed, um, but really entice and invite people to dive deeper into learning, whether it's um, our future videos reaching out to you or just, just learning more so that they can do better um, for those that they serve. So, um, so for those of you who are listening and or viewing, please know that this is going to be a fabulous conversation, um, but we invite you to continue learning and growing um, so that we can make a greater impact for those in our community and our world. Um, so back to the first thing, Mark, can you talk a little bit about what is, what is the difference between mental um, illness and mental health? Yes. It's whenever I go and speak, it's one of the first things that I like to talk about is because uh, oftentimes people will use those terms interchangeably and they are not. Uh, there is a difference. Um, so let me take this out of the mental health world and let me put this into the physical health world. Right. So, uh, for example, uh, if you uh, rake all of the leaves in your yard uh, some nice fall weekend and uh, you wake up the next day with a stiff back, you're not injured or sick, you're sore because you overdid it, right? And uh, that's different than having a bulging disc in your back, which is an actual injury or illness, uh, depending upon what it is. So let's move back to the mental health piece. Um, everybody has mental health, but not everybody has a mental illness. So mental health is a spectrum. You're going to have great days. You're going to have days that not so much. Uh, like mine the other day when I was telling you that I dropped my laptop, I broke the hard drive, uh, it's unrecoverable, I lost everything for everything that I have in my life is now gone off that computer. And later that night, the dishwasher broke down, we had to have somebody come and repair that. It was just a, a comedy of errors. Like, that affects your, your mental health, right? You had a tough day. But that's different than a mental illness, something that's diagnosable, and can be treated with talk therapy or uh, medication or uh, a variety of other things that we'll dive into later. But that's really the distinction between the two, if that makes sense. It does. So, and so um, this is definitely an area that I uh, need some tremendous growth as well. And I'm learning along with those of the people that are listening and, and watching. Um, so, and maybe you'll talk about this a little bit more. So when you talk about, um, like mental health, how you, how you are or how you feel is usually um, caused by the different things that have, you've experienced. Is that correct? So for example, you dropped your computer, your dishwasher started going out. And so that is going to influence your mental health or, Correct. okay. So, and, and, then, and it can impact your mental illness as well, because it could, you know, the extra stress or anxiety of how am I going to pay for this? Or I've lost important documents or whatever that can actually trigger uh, a, a portions of some mental illness as well. So it's not quite so clear cut, but yeah. Yeah. But so um, your mental health could influence your mental illness. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Um, okay. So when we are, and I know you work really with the whole gamut and for us right now, we're really with um, those of the people who are viewing and, and watching and listening might be thinking more along the lines of students. Um, so what are some mental health facts in general for youth specifically? So in general, um, one in four people uh, in our country have a mental illness. And in any given year, 60% of those people who have a mental illness don't get the treatment that they need. Okay? So think of it in these terms. If you are working at a school with 1,200 students, uh, 300 of those students have a mental illness. And of those, 180 are getting no treatment for it whatsoever. So is it any wonder why we have some of the issues that we have when you kind of look at some of the, the basic statistics uh, of that? Um, the good news, however, is that when people do get treatment, 90% report an improvement. So it's something that's fixable. It's just a matter of figuring out the best way to reach those kids 
to get it fixed. And so that was um, a few of the things about the over uh, the statistics, if you will, of what we're what we're dealing with, the problem that we're faced with um, in, in today's society. Can I ask? So, learning that um, you know, in serving close to twelve hundred or whatever that number might be, we've got that you said one in four. Yes. One in four. So one in four of the students that we serve or as a leader in um, education, one in four adults that we, yeah. you know, that we serve and that we support. Um, and are these then diagnosed or are we just saying right now it, it's one in four, but it's now our job to do diligence to make sure that we are finding that one in four and then being able to support? Absolutely, you're, you're, you hit the nail right on the head. Not every one of those is diagnosed. In fact, a large percentage of them don't go diagnosed um, in, in many uh, parts because of, uh, and there could be any number of reasons, whether it's that stigma that we talked about, uh, where, you know, look, uh, we, don't, we don't talk about mental health at our house. Uh, you know, rub some dirt on it, you'll be fine, uh, kind of old school attitude uh, towards things. Um, it can be where maybe they don't have the, the resources, the uh, insurance or the money to be able to go and seek out treatment. And sometimes it's just as simple as you don't know what you don't know. Um, I wasn't diagnosed with bipolar until I was 35. Um, I just kind of thought like, well, is, isn't this just kind of like how everybody lives their life, right? I mean, I just thought it was normal. <laughs> I didn't know any better. Yeah. Uh, until somebody's like, uh, no, Mark, uh, it, that's not how this works at all. <laughs> you need to figure this out and get some help. So some of it can be that part of it as well. So um, and, and the, the fourth piece of that is some folks uh, who have uh, a mental illness were really, really, really good at hiding it because we want to be accepted. And so we don't talk about it. We cover things up or brush them off as something else altogether. So um, just that own internal piece, you know, you, you hear all, a lot of times where folks will be like, well, well he seems so happy. Well, yeah, it's, <laughs> they, they, you get good at faking yet uh, when you have a mental illness because you want to fit in especially uh, when you're school-aged even more so yeah um, I, actually when you were talking about that I I remember there was a breakfast when I was in high school um, that was for Mother's Day and my mom decided so I have a sister um, so she decided to bring her two daughters out um, invite us for breakfast that day and we went and I remember there was a speaker and um, it was a woman who I was familiar with in our hometown, um, but hadn't gotten to know very well. And so um, she shared that she, um, I believe she had depression. And I remember, I mean, that was, gosh, high school, that was like 98, 97 for me. Um, but I remember how quiet it got in that room at that time. And it was weird to me because for me, I started to wonder why it was so quiet. You know, like it, you could have heard a pin drop and, and I started to look around and some people were avoiding looking at her. She was in the center of the room and, you know, and, and there just, there was no response. And for me, I would have like, I would have loved to see that standing ovation type of a response for everybody, but it, right. just, it seemed like it wasn't the time yet for some people to accept and even maybe look inside themselves and think could this be me you know could this like you said you don't know what you don't know you, you kind of go about thinking that whatever you are feeling um whether it is normal or not is normal until you are told otherwise or you realize otherwise so it's been really really great to see since that time and that experience for me um more and more people share more and more people tell their story and even people who have um, the spotlight already, people in the news, people on, on, on TV or on radio, we're able to hear um, that everybody is starting to feel okay and understand that it's necessary for them to tell their story, not only for themselves, but to help others as well. Yeah, there, there is a great deal of power in sharing your story. I, I have to tell you, when I came out about my mental health, it was the equally the scariest thing I've ever done because I didn't know what it was going to look like on the other side, but also the most empowering. Uh, I felt completely liberated. Like I didn't have any more secrets from my friends. Uh, I just was like, ah, I can just be me finally. 
And uh, it was huge. And I get and I respect people who aren't ready to share. Uh, everybody's at a different place in their journey, and that's totally okay. And some people will never want to share, uh, and I have no problem with that. What I do encourage people to do is uh, share if you're comfortable sharing, because there, it, it not only is going to make you feel much, much better, but you don't know how it's going to impact the people around you. Um, I, I know when I shared my story on the Beautiful Mind Project, um, I mean, I got responses from all over the country, the people that saw my story and you know, were inspired and thanked me. And, you know, I was, you know, thinking of harming myself, but uh, your story changed my mind, that kind of stuff. And, you know, I never thought that that would even be a thing uh, and have that kind of impact, but it, it truly did. And so uh, we actually ran a, a series called 30 for 30 uh, this last fall, 30 stories in 30 days, where I asked folks, uh, our followers, on Facebook to send me their stories and we would publish them on our website unedited I mean I didn't correct grammar or anything so um, you know for all you teachers out there who are going to you know critique the spelling or whatever that wasn't me <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, it was really interesting and it's from a wide different uh, a lot of different perspectives it's from people who have lost loved ones it's from people who have a mental illness for people who have family members and what it's like to live with somebody with a mental illness I mean there are certainly challenges associated with that as well so I'm going to piggyback to where you were encouraging people to share when they're comfortable. I'm going to encourage in addition to that, if somebody does share to thank them for sharing and to mm -hmm. be supportive in that realm because silence could be, you know, could send a message that you don't want to send. So being able to be both on the sharing side, but then on the receiving side and helping to um, release the stigma of, talking about it and, and of learning and growing together on it. Um, you don't need to solve the, you know, the problem or the issue or anything like that. It can be just as simple as just sitting next to the person, you know, putting your arm around them, you know, letting them like, look, I'm here for you whenever you want to talk. Something simple like that goes so far. It goes so far in, in helping, helping them. Um, so I'm going to go on a little bit of a bird walk because when you said that, <laughs> there's a lot of um, – I've been seeing a lot of uh, conversation about sympathy and empathy and how it is um, maybe not more important, but it has a greater impact on somebody if you are empathetic instead of offering the upside or the bright side, that sort of a thing. Um, so I know, I mean, there's, there are a lot of authors and I remember watching a video of a study where um, a scientist our researcher had some of the people come in and they re they learned that they got a parking ticket on their vehicle. And so this researcher approached them and said, um, and kind of said the upside or, you know, maybe things will be better, whatever. And then um, another person came and said, gosh, that's such a bummer. I'm sorry. And, you know, had that kind of empathetic side. And then afterwards um, they had the, the people that were coming in, um, take a like a survey and they noticed that the people that were empathized with um, still had more of a positive look or attitude about their ticket than the people who were told you know it could have been worse or you know like that sort of a thing so I've really been trying to learn about um, how to when people do share and when they're they're vulnerable with me how to be able to um, respond in a way that doesn't negate what they're feeling. And it's not a competition. It's like, oh, I know exactly what you're going through. No, no, actually, you don't. You may have experienced something similar, but that was your experience. And so it's not a comparison. It's just, again, it's just being with that person is so, so important. And uh, just having somebody to talk to, um, it, it can make all the difference in the, in the world in a young person's life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as we were talking and we were talking about the one in four, um, yeah. who, so I really want to kind of think about, I know even in, in the world of education, it is so important to catch kiddos at their littlest stages in um, any sort of learning uh, development stage that might trigger whether they are going to have a learning disability or to need some extra support. Um, what do we know about brain development for kids and for mental health? Well, you know, the, the brain actually develops from um, a back to front 
um, to, to the prefrontal uh, cortex, which is, you know, like the part that we always like, how come you just don't do this? And it's because it's the last part that, <laughs> that gets formed uh, with it. And so, um, you know, that, that lack of uh, maturity um, often makes it difficult uh, to distinct, uh, you know, make a distinction between what's normal teen behavior and what are some, maybe some warning signs that we should be aware of, you know, and, and these affect everything from, you know, impulse control to emotional reactions and, um, you know, not being able to focus on, on certain things. You know, those are kind of stereotypical developmental pieces to it. Um, whereas, you know, some of the early warning signs would fall more into, um, you know, disturbed uh, sleep patterns. Um, irritability, those, those types of, of, I mean, there's on, there's a, on a huge laundry list. Uh, it's probably like 15 deep, 20 deep. I won't go over every single one of them with you, but um, you know, so it's some of those things and uh, you know, people who are, aren't finding the, the same joy um, out of certain activities that they normally would, you know, if you uh, maybe you've got a, an athlete in your life or a musician in your life and you notice like they just don't seem to care about it anymore. You know, those are some, you know, would be something that you would want to uh, talk to them about. You know, like, hey, is everything okay? You know, is there anything you want to talk about? How are we feeling? Uh, those types of things. So um, I know I've got a, I've got a sixth grader uh, in my life. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, so I, I, I get to do all of that fun, those fun things of decoding what she actually meant by, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, what happened at school today. Yeah, nothing. Oh. Okay, great. <laughs> All day, nothing happened. That's fantastic. Um, and, and trying to figure out, you know, did something happen and she's just not wanting to talk about it yet? Uh, so those are some, sometimes it's just a little bit of a, you know, being persistent. And I understand as an educator, you've got a lot of kids in front of you every day and nobody's asking you to be a mental health expert, you know. Um, but I'm going to guess that uh, every single person who is watching this course at one point in their career or another has kind of gotten one of those gut feelings about a kid like, ah, I just tell something's not right. You know, you, you know when something's off with, with a kid who's not, not themselves. And, uh, you know, it's, it's actually, uh, speaking of bird walks here, I'm going to take a quick, quick one here. You know, we're in the, we're in the, the stay at home distance learning piece right now. So I get to hear my, my sixth grader interact with her teachers. Uh, which is something I would never ever get to do and I have to say that I've been so thoroughly impressed with You know how they've reached out to her and checked in on her uh, one of the teachers actually uh, FaceTimed her last night at 8 o'clock at night because they noticed she hadn't done some of her homework and You know my daughter was having problems downloading a, a book she needed to read and she walked her through that and I'm like That's amazing, you know um, and I totally recognize that that's above and beyond the call of duty, but just that teacher recognizing that, Hey, something was wrong with this kid who normally has her work in on time was missing something. So. Yeah. What I, what I also hear you saying. So, um, you know, right now with distance learning, it's incredibly important for our teachers to be able to connect with their students. Um, and I love that you have, um, that your daughter has that ability or opportunity to be able to connect with her teacher beyond the normal work hours, which mm -hmm. as an educator and, and working right now with a lot of classroom teachers, um, all of them have said that the workload is about the same, maybe a little bit more, but instead of it being from, you know, your 7.30 to 3.30, your contractual day, mm -hmm. it's all spread out through the entire day. And so, um, they're finding ways to be able to reach out to families and the students um, that work best for them, yeah. you know, when it works best for them. And, and I think that's, that is wonderful um, for being able to kind of keep tabs or check in with students. What I hear you saying too, though, is um, yes, we don't have to ask every single student, you know, how are you feeling? Tell me your right. story and kind of probe and maybe dig deep. Um, but we should watch for where things are changing from what we consider normal for that student's behavior. Right. Yeah. That person who's normally, you know, the life of the class and is suddenly withdrawn. 
Um, you know, cues like that where you're like, hey, something, something's going wrong, you know, going on here. Just a, it can be a quick check-in. You know, I mean, you know, I, I had a teacher like that uh, when I was a senior in high school, and uh, he he was ended up being my favorite teacher, even though he taught my least favorite class, which was chemistry. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, he was my basketball coach, and so it was one of those things where uh, I had broken up with. Uh, my girlfriend of two years and you know, I was feeling pretty bummed out about it. And he noticed that something was not right with me. And he pulled me aside one, one day um, and just had a heart to heart talk with me and like, you know, Hey, what's going on? And I mean, it made a huge difference in my life, you know? And so it can be just, it's just, small. it's small things. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, we talk about too with the brain and how it develops from back to front. And you said you have a sixth grader. I have a sixth grader and I have been noticing um, some things. In, and I think there's actually in education more of a, a general understanding that middle school is a tough level to teach um, for a lot of teachers because they're... I love you all. <laughs> you are angels. I tell you what. There is this, and I'm noticing just with my, my son, um, he is very quick to respond before thinking about how he's responding, or he's very quick to do something without thinking of the outcome or the repercussions or what could happen. And I know, you know, I, I work with my own kiddos on talking about healthy risk taking when we are outdoors and that sort of a thing, but I'm, there are some things that are happening with him right now that I'm noticing that is a change in behavior, but I, I guess for me, I'm, I just kind of attribute that to that's his brain right now is, is working on over mode or overload trying to, yeah. um, so can you, can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like in an adolescent brain, um, in terms of if I'm watching for a change, um, specifically to be able to identify if any of my students might be at risk or might be, um, in need of support, what, like, where would that threshold or that line be where I would just, ins or I might look at that student and say, that's just middle school. <laughs> that's right. just how his or her brain is working right now. Yeah. And that's, you know, and, and that's where um, this can be really challenging in that, um, you know, this isn't like uh, a hard science like math, like there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. Um, you know, there, there are degrees to everything. And what what might be normal for one child isn't normal for another. And so uh, there isn't, like I said, a, a hard and fast, like, black and white line. But, um, again, some of the things are, like, a, a decrease of uh, enjoyment in spending time with friends and family. Um, a significant decrease in school performance. So, uh, again, you know, they're not turning their homework in on time. Uh, the, the work they are turning in is substandard for what they normally uh, would be doing um, strong resistance to attending school or absenteeism um, are again other indicators that something may be going on whether at home or at school or both um, if problems with memory or concentration um, big changes in energy level in diet uh, sleeping eating uh, patterns uh, all, all vary as well uh, sometimes um, you know you might be able to notice something in uh, their artwork, you know, uh, it, maybe it turns uh, a little darker, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, more violent themes uh, to some of their art, uh, perhaps, you know, as they, they doodle or draw on their desk or book or wherever they're doing that sort of thing. Um, of course, and then you, you then kind of ramp that up a little bit further into, you know, maybe they begin to use uh, illicit you know, smoking marijuana or um, using alcohol um, other thrill-seeking behaviors um, that would go outside the norm of, you know, what a typical uh, school-age person would do, um, because that actually is uh, an indicator of a mental health uh, illness. In that, you know, a lot of people think that, um, you know, they, killing yourself or wanting to harm yourself revolves strictly around like you know, using a gun or hanging or whatever. But it also can be you know, driving 110 miles an hour down Main Street, you know, <laughs> without right. your seatbelt on, or jumping from, you know, an 80-foot-high cliff into the, you know, quarry or into the lake or whatever. So there are other behaviors and, and patterns in there that uh, all are indicators of 
uh, and warning signs that, hey, you know, this is flashing. And it doesn't mean that it necessarily is, but it's certainly something that you'd probably want to take a look at. Yeah. Um, so what I, I guess I, I hear you saying that in addition to watching for behavior changes to look at kind of being more really just opening up your awareness of, of different things that are happening. So like you say, you could, it could be artwork. It could be that they don't want to go to school, but just one time of not wanting to go to school or one piece of art that has something, you know, that might be con considered odd or for their their typical behavior, but looking for patterns, patterns. And, and change um, that is happening consistently. So it's yes. not just kind of this one time thing. Yeah. Um, okay. Sorry. Um, so as we talk then, you know, and we're talking about looking for these patterns, um, and then you, you moved to talk about how suicide doesn't necessarily, you know, and if you think about it, it doesn't have to involve a weapon. Um, one thing that I did learn, and I don't know if you can speak to this, is that um, usually males are more successful in their suicide attempts than females because males usually choose the type of um, or weapon or what that would I, I, and I don't know how to say it, so I feel kind of, but, yeah, but yeah. that if they, if they choose a gun, that is going to be successful in, in their attempt. Whereas, and I, I heard and learned that females do, um, or might choose to do something that's not as. Immediately. Um, yeah. Yeah. So can you, can you speak to that? Absolutely. Uh, you are exactly right. Uh, uh, boys are uh, much um, more successful in completing the act successfully than uh, girls are for that very reason. They typically are going to use a gun. And a gun, there's almost no turning back from. Um, whereas uh, girls or females will uh, typically use pills or cut, um, hanging, things like that. Things that the success rate of those isn't quite as high. It's still dangerous, obviously. But uh, not quite as as high and um, suicide in teen it's a third leading cause of death in teens and uh, for every um, suicide I want to make sure I get these numbers right there are at least 100 suicide attempts Wow and um, over 14% of high school students have considered suicide and 7% have attempted it. So in that class, in that student body of 1,200, you have 7% who've attempted suicide. You're looking at 84 people. That's about, what, three classrooms full of kids right. have attempted suicide. I and mean, if you think about that, if you just walked down the hall and picked three classrooms and said these three, at some point in the next, in their high school careers, they're all going to try to kill themselves. It, it, it's pretty mind-bending to think about yeah uh, that um that uh, that so just learning that and hearing that i am wondering th th a couple of things so first i would hope that in monitoring and being very cognizant of behaviors that are happening with my students um that i might be able to find that little sliver of where um, I can be sure and I might there be calls for help or kind of those those signs that are a little bit more outward than just a change in behavior um, but also then how, how do you even go about trying to support or finding resources or knowing what to do or what to say. I mean, we talked about empathy, but if, if I see a student and you said there are three classrooms out of a, you know, out of a 1200 um, student body population, how do I do what I need to do to help prevent that, prevent anything from um, happening or how can I, implore what I know. What are some resources? What are some things that I can do that aren't going to turn students away and instead they're going to feel the trust and, and understand that there is support in every direction? Right. Well, if, if you think that 
um, a student is uh, been exhibiting behavior or uh, has some warning signs. Uh, the research has shown, as uncomfortable as it may be for you, to be direct and ask the question, are you thinking about killing yourself? That if you don't pose the question that way, it gives them an out. You know, this is, and it, it's just a different way of doing it um, that the research has shown is much more effective. And from there, you know, depending upon what they say, how they respond to that, you want to make sure that you're keeping them safe. Um, there's uh, some, you know, some places, uh, you know, protocols will have you um, contact uh, uh, the local hospital um, to uh, get them uh, possibly admitted for a 72-hour cycle. Um, sometimes they don't qualify for that because there, there are certain criteria you need to meet, and one of which is you need to have a plan. And if they don't have a plan yet, but those thoughts, yeah, I've had thoughts of it, but I don't have a plan yet, um, you know, then they need to utilize some other sources. So there's a lot of county resources. Um, you know, I know in my area here, there's a crisis response team that will actually go out to the, the client's house and intervene uh, with somebody who's suicidal. So there's a, there's a lot of different programs that are out there. Um, and this is an area where we've actually uh, stepped up because uh, it's been one of my long-held beliefs that it's uh, a grossly uh, underserved segment of the mental health population, and that's uh, with our urgent care for mental health program. And so what we do is we offer same or next day appointments uh, to our clients. And uh, if you've ever picked up the phone and tried to get in somewhere, you, more times than not, you're going to have to wait, you know, anywhere from two to six to eight weeks or, or more. And so if you have a student who, you know, maybe they're not quite suicidal, but you, they're struggling and they need help, not in a month, but like in a day, that's where um, that kind of a program, an urgent care program like that. It's only the fourth one in the state, the only one outside of the metro area. And uh, our, our plan, uh, right now we're in central Minnesota, but our plan is to be statewide in three years. So, um, and we want everybody to have access to it uh, because it's been uh, a frustration of mine uh, over the years that, you know, when you finally get somebody who says, all right, fine, I, I'll go, I need, you know, I, I recognize that I need help. And then they go and make that appointment and it's a month out. Well, what do you think happens in that month? They lose all their mojo, all the steam for that goes away. And they're like, nah, I'm feeling better now. I'm good. Uh, well, no, you might be feeling better right now, but the problem didn't go away. It just subsided. And so they, they never get the help that they actually need. And so they're at risk. And uh, my thought process on it, and uh, I'm kind of maybe jumping the, the gun here a little bit with some of the other things we're going to talk about, but uh, my, my whole point with the urgent care piece of it is when we're talking about suicide prevention, almost exclusively suicide prevention is focused on the very end process. Like, oh, you want to kill yourself? You want to harm yourself? Well, let's get in the game. Let's start, you know, let's treat you now. We don't do that with any other part of medicine. We don't go, well, now that you've got stage four breast cancer, uh, let's start giving you treatment, right? No, we do mammograms. We do prostate exams. We are proactive with how we treat uh, that person, right? And we don't do that with mental health. We, we literally wait until you're on the cusp of death before we decide to act. And we need to be swimming way further upstream and getting folks help before it ever becomes that big of an issue. And if we can do that, uh, that would mean a huge difference in the number of suicides in our country if we get people the tools they need, the help that they need, uh, as opposed to waiting to the end. And know how I know that suicide prevention programs uh, aren't successful? Because over 40,000 people take their lives every year. It takes more people than breast cancer does. Wow. So it, it's, it's one of those things where um, we need to rethink how we approach mental health in preventing suicides. It's not, to me, it's not the end of the, <laughs> the right. race. It, it's way back up towards the beginning of it. And it starts with other things such as, you know, my, my personal belief is I think we should be teaching mental health from the first day a kid steps into school. Uh, on up. Now, I know um, I'm not talking about talking depression and suicide with a kindergarten or a first grader, but we can talk about uh, feelings, how to recognize those, how to process those, recognize them in others, how to be compassionate, um, how to, you know, those are things we can teach 
to uh, kids to get them to be in line and in tune with their emotions. So when they get older and they get into that middle school where everything's, you know, a five alarm fire going off in their brain, uh, they actually have some tools with how to manage a little bit better than we've done in the past. Um, so that's a, one of the other things. I love that you shared that though, because, you know, um, well, there are a couple of things that I want to touch on. So I'm going to say those and then I'm going to go back to what I want to share. <laughs> um, so uh, the suicide piece, um, I had heard that the, the um, students are, it's becoming younger and younger. And right now about age 12 is where um, kiddos start thinking about um, you know, the value of life and, and what that means and then considering um, whether or not they should stick around here. Um, so that is one thing um, that I would like to touch on in terms of age level about really where, what age kids start to think about and whether or not my, what I heard is confirmed. 10. Oh, poor kid. Okay. So 10. Um, and then I know, you know, we needed to touch on that suicide is a public or is a, pub, a public health concern. But really, I mean, I guess I don't know how much more we need to share in order for people to realize how much of a concern. I mean, this is this is so urgent that we need to do something differently. And I love that you're saying we need to back the train up and not only um, you know serve those who are at the very, very end of it. but all the way behind um and like you said then too so right now i have the privilege of being able to work as social emotional learning coordinator and that is what i do that is um with teachers and with students is starting as little as our kinder friends and focusing on you know the first parts of being self-aware and being able to recognize emotions and our body sensations and how they can help us see what we're feeling. And then we expand beyond ourselves and how are other people feeling? How do you know? You know, and then, and then building in that um, social awareness, the responsible decision-making. So these are all the castle competencies, the five for social emotional, but I wholeheartedly agree that if we can instill that understanding, knowledge, wherewithal, and strategies and tools early, and they start to practice these and get comfortable using breathing techniques or counting or closing their eyes and picturing, you know, a great place to be, any of those things that they just add to their tool belt, things that they can use later on, like you said, when all of the fire alarms are going off at once in, you know, in their middle school or, or um, beyond. So... And, and let me let me also clarify something that uh, regarding suicide, and and that is that uh, a lot of people think that uh, those who attempt suicide uh, want to die; they want to end their life, and that's not true. They actually want to end the pain. They they don't want to suffer anymore, and it's the only way left that they know that that will occur. So it wasn't that when I attempted uh, to take my life that I wanted to uh, end my life per se. I just didn't want to hurt anymore. I didn't want to feel the way that I was feeling. And so that is important to know. And yes. so uh, when you approach this, you talk to a student about it, like, oh, don't think about your family or think about your friends. You know what? That's probably one of the worst things you can say to somebody who's in that, that space, in that mind space, because in their mind, they're thinking, I am thinking about my family. That's why I'm doing this. I don't want to have to have them suffer uh, with me and my, you know, moods or, you know, what I bring to the family anymore, you know. So it, they're not being selfish. If anything, they're thinking of it the other way, that they're being selfless uh, to ease the other's pain around them. So it's just really important to, to know yeah. that distinction from somebody who's been there with literally with the blade pressed to my wrist. I, I can tell you that that's what goes through a person's head. And the, one other quick side note, um, everybody thinks that uh, when you are going to take your life that uh, you leave a, a suicide note. The reality is is only about 30% of people do. It's not an automatic. It's not a given. Um, because oftentimes there's not a big buildup to it. 
it can be like they've been kind of simmering, right? You know, have you ever had a pot of water on the stove and it's just right on that edge of boil, right? And if you just turn it up just one more little notch, it boils over. And all of a sudden you're like, well, I barely touched it. What happened? That's exactly what can happen with a lot of kids is they're already, they're right close to that line and it doesn't take much. Something small can send them over the top and next thing you know, they're gone, unfortunately. You talked um, and said, and I'll be honest, when you said it in my mind, I was thinking, gosh, as an educator, I don't know if I can just come right out and say, are you thinking about killing yourself? And even just saying it right now, it, it causes my body to react mm -hmm. a little bit like, oh, I don't know. But I'm glad you said that. And I'm glad that you said, here's the reason why as well, because you don't want to cushion it and allow them to have an out. Like it's too important for you to... Um, try to sugarcoat or, you know, allow them the freedom of responding in a way that they want. And it just needs to be that. Um, so I appreciate that. And I will, in my diligence of watching for behaviors in the kiddos that, um, you know, that I, I know closely and, um, and all that I care for, what happens if they say yes? Okay. Um, <laughs> let's, let's get you, uh, first of all, um, you're not going to leave my side. Uh, <laughs> we're going to stick together and we're going to get you the help that we need. All right. I'm, I'm here to care for you. And uh, that's where, uh, at that point you need to get mom and dad uh, involved uh, where applicable um, and uh, need to, again, reach out to the proper authority and follow whatever procedures that your particular institution has for things like that. Um, and I know uh, different schools have different protocols and then they probably all more or less follow something similar um, with, with that. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you don't want to leave them alone for even a minute. Like you, they're glued to you until you can hand them off to who, whoever it is that's going to take them to get the help that they need. Cause they need to go to a hospital. If they're thinking of killing themselves, they need to go to a hospital. They need to get assessed and may have a determination made on what's that next step uh, with that. And frankly, uh, it doesn't matter how embarrassing it is for the kid uh, at that point. Um, I'd rather have them die from embarrassment than actually die. Yeah. So. Um, I, so I know we have a couple of thing, other things to touch base mm -hmm. on, but I want you to be able to share, um, if you would want to, about a project that you're working on, how we talked about, rather than waiting to serve and support and address um, people at the very end when they are, when it's, I don't want to say most concerning, but I'm thinking when it's most urgent or when, you know, yeah, they're at the end of that. Um, so what what are you working on right now that and sorry you shared it with me so i'm excited yeah yeah, yeah. Go we've got uh, a, a program that we uh, are just putting the finishing touches on uh, um fall of 2020 we're gonna uh, begin our first round of uh, beta testing and the project is, is called the beacon assessment and so the idea with the beacon assessment is that we uh, want to give every kid in grades 5 through 12 a mental health assessment once at the beginning of the year, maybe during orientation. They pop into the computer lab, go to our website, complete the, the, the survey, which will take all of five minutes to, to do, um, and we'll get that data. Um, and what we'll do is we'll be able to assess to see who's in a high-risk category, you know, uh, and we'll get those kids immediate help. Um, we then want to do a second assessment um, once school's been in session for a while, so midway through the year, maybe after Christmas break, uh, something like that, to kind of see uh, how kids are progressing, uh, how are they tracking, um, are uh, are certain kids uh, did they did they go down? Why did they go down uh, in their mental health? Is it because of school? Is it because of social issues? Those types of things. And the idea with it is um, really kind of kind of twofold. One is uh, we want to be able to catch kids early. Uh, again, being proactive in our search for kids who are at risk, who may harm themselves. Uh, the second piece of it uh, is, is we want to be able to provide the schools with data uh, about their students that is going to be really helpful in how they design 
their, uh, their educational platform, maybe the way they conduct classes or uh, how they train their, their instructors or, or whatever it is that you know, the, the data brings out and highlights. Uh, that's really what we're hoping to do. And so we're hoping by 2021 we can roll that out in force uh, across the state. And this is, again, uh, another personal uh, project of mine, uh, from my own, born out of my own personal experience. Because uh, my bipolar disorder, my doctors had said, you probably had it when you were a teenager. Now, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 35. Now, as much as I love my, my family and my life now, there's a part of me that wonders, how different would my life be if I was diagnosed when I was 15 instead of 35? And so I want to give those kids, the 15-year-old me, <laughs> uh, the best opportunity uh, to be the best versions of themselves possible. That's our goal, our mission. And, uh, and it can be anything from you know, helping to reduce uh, bullying um, to uh, you know, people who, who are marginalized because they're part of the LGBTQ community uh, or uh, they maybe have some other uh, mental uh, issue, you know, uh, maybe they're on the autism spectrum, things of that nature, where they have trouble fitting in socially, and as a result, get bullied because they're different. Um, so that, that's, that's our beacon assessment program. And to anybody listening out there, I would absolutely love to talk to you and your school about about the program in detail and, and how we can maybe uh, help you guys uh, learn more about your student body and, and be proactive in making it better. There are so many school districts right now that are doing um, kind of the overall mental health assessments of staff and students and families, you know, in that kind of that broad sense. But this sounds to me like it is really focused and by being really focused is going to be able to then um, complement with the data that is discovered, it's like plans, good, like um, intensive or very, very, systematic ideas of how to address exactly what is happening with the five through 12th grade students. Well, just imagine, you know, uh, you, you, if your, your district did this uh, over a five-year window, now you're able to track that sixth grader all the way up through 11th grade and see how they make that adjustment from, you know, middle school to junior high to senior high and the challenges and how, how it affected their mental health along the way. Uh, I mean, the, the, the information and data that you can get from this is, be really interesting, at least to a nerd like myself. Yes. Uh, uh, I, I think it would be really helpful in improving the quality of service that we deliver. Because here's the thing. I, I, I talk to school districts and administrators and teachers all the time, and they're like, look, we're not in the business of mental health. And I totally get that. I 100% get that. However, you also spend more time with our children than the parents do. You know, especially if you have a student who's into extracurriculars, you know, kid gets, you know, at school all day. By the time they get out, they go do their extracurricular. They get home at eight o'clock at night, nine o'clock at night, bang out some homework, eat something, take a shower, go to bed. Where's, where's the family? Time? Where's, where's the time for me to like observe my kid to see if they're being okay, you know, how their things are going. So, um, and I just think that, um, I'm not asking you guys to be mental health professionals. Um, I'm just uh, asking you to be observant uh, professionals who can help the mental health professionals get the help to where it needs to go. Absolutely. I think that's the difference. Um, and I am incredibly proud to say that I feel that it is very up and coming for schools to be able to identify and recognize that it is um, equally as important to understand the whole child, so the soft or essential skills, um, the emotions, and then, you know, and, and then the learning um, as well. So it, it's really neat to see that um, as much as maybe schools aren't in the mental health business, it's the underlying foundational piece for learning and successful it, learning. It really so, is, yeah. It, Yep, and so more and more people are seeing that, and so I'm actually very excited um, that I was able to meet with you, you know, meet you and, and learn about what you're doing because I feel like this is incredibly timely um, for the Beacon Project to roll out when districts themselves are really starting to see that um, this is a necessity for them to understand about all of their students and their student body. 
And, and, and it improves so much because, you know, just imagine that your school doesn't have as many fights. There's less bullying. There's better attendance, better grades, better graduation rates. All of those things that take away from the experience for those who don't have a mental illness. You know, I mean, my, my oldest, uh, she went to a public high school and she would tell me, like, every day there's a fight uh, in high school, at least one. You know, and I was like, what? Are you kidding me? You know, no, every single day there was, there'd be a fight. And, you know, we were fortunate that it didn't really affect her too much, but I can imagine that that would have an impact on other people that are feeling afraid to go to school, uh, the anxiety of that. Am I going to be next? Uh, you know, all those things play into that. So it's, it's goes beyond, it's bigger than just helping those who have a, a mental illness or need mental, mental health help. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really think that I, I know prior to our discussion, we, we set up some bullet points and yeah. I feel like, I feel like we have pretty much covered everything that we were planning to talk about. Um, if you, so I am wondering then for suicide prevention in schools, um, overall, so rather than watching and waiting for a change in behavior or for that moment that I need to approach a student and ask him or her if they are thinking about killing themselves, what are some key pieces that um, schools can do in order to help with, um, or like what are some systems or things that are, are, that are good to be set in place for them? Well, there's a, I mean, there's a few. Um, you know, the, the first would be that the staff members have, you know, some in-service training on mental health, uh, uh, how to observe, uh, what behaviors to observe, those types of things. Um, parental awareness programs are another uh, piece of that, uh, where, uh, you, know, having, you know, having the parents on board, it can be tricky. You know, it, it really can be. Um, some parents are really open and excited for it and, um, others, uh, you know, they're just, they're disengaged no matter what the topic and others are just disengaged because the topic makes them feel uncomfortable and they don't want to think that there's anything wrong with their child. So, um, I, I think the school needs to do what it can to, you know, make some of those things aware. Um, I mean, I think there's, there are some other unique, um, unique ideas that have been floating out there. Um, one uh, that I'll, uh, I can share with you is, um, again, I'm a big fan of thinking outside the box, right? So this one is geared a little bit more towards, um, you know, a, a high school situation. It could probably lend itself to a junior high, but uh, from a high school situation, you know, if you put together uh, an anti-stigma campaign, um, but this one would be a little different in that it's not going to be directed from administration. It'd be actually directed from the students. And what I mean by that is in every school, uh, every high school, uh, if you're a staff member there, you know who the influencers are in that school, right? There's, you know, five to 15 folks who everybody in the school is going to, every student is going to take their cue from those people, you know, and, they can be anything from the athletes, the dance team, to whatever it is. Um, so why not pull those kids into a classroom one day and say, this is what we want to do. And we need you guys to be the leaders of this project. And have them step up and set the tone for everybody else. And uh, in my mind, um, that would have a, a much greater weight than something from the top-down type thing. you know where. Uh, you get these kids fired up about this uh, project. And uh, a lot of those kids, you know, they want to be leaders. I mean, they, they enjoy that role anyway, you know, um, and they, they're kind of a natural at it. So let them work, work to our advantage for a change, right. you know. And so that, that's uh, just, again, one of the uh, out-of-the-box ideas uh, of doing something different. And I'm sure there are others out there um, with that type of thing. Um, uh, I don't know if I answered your question or not. No, you did. And actually, I was thinking too. So, I mean, really for, for prevention, there are umpteen different um, options to do. And some of the um, 
like you said, out of the box, but I mean, maybe you quite possibly even more meaningful is when it's driven by peers. And when you said that too, I was thinking, do you feel that kids, students, do you feel that they are growing up right now in a world where it's becoming more normal to talk about and to recognize and to accept? So, you know, you talked about how parents sometimes it's tricky because you're right. Some of them, it's, it's a very taboo topic for them and they haven't come to that acceptance and maybe they never will. But students right now, especially those that are in schools, have, they're, they're being more exposed to it more frequently and it's becoming something where it is normal. And so hopefully as generations grow and, and get older, it will, it, it'll just actually change the paradigm and it'll become just like a normal thing. Like you said, just like, um, you know, a physical uh, illness or if we are feeling like we're not healthy, it's going to be recognized across the board. No, you're absolutely right. And uh, the story I would tell you is this, is that when we launched five years ago, I, I was like a pariah at a school. I could not, like they wouldn't even talk to me. Uh, about coming in and doing speaking engagements or anything like that. That was a, a total non-starter. Uh, that was just five years ago. Um, the analogy that um, we've tried to adopt, the approach we've tried to, to adopt, is the same approach that the LGBTQ community used. Uh, if you think back uh, 20, 25 years ago, um, there was no gay marriage. If a star came out, publicly, like it was a huge deal. It was like headline news and all, you know, it was a big deal, right? There were no gay t TV shows, um, or if there was a gay character, it was a stereotypical character, right? Fast forward 20 years, two decades, uh, gay marriage is legal. Uh, it, I mean, if a star comes out, it's like, yeah, whatever, yeah. <laughs> big deal, right? Been to gay weddings. <laughs> um, you know, they got their own network, you know, I mean, so it's in just 20 years. And the approach they use is they, they talked about it and they talked about it and they talked about it and they educated people because what happens is, is people are afraid of something they don't know anything about. And it's the same thing with mental health. Like I see what I see in the movies and on TV that the person who has a mental illness is always the murderer, right? They're not Bob in accounting who's depressed and just, you know, is trying to slug through the day. That's not, doesn't make for very interesting TV. But that's what mental illness looks like most of the time. You know, is, does mental illness sometimes the guy on the corner talking to himself? Yeah, that's a part of it. A very, very small part of it. And so we need to, you know, continue to talk about, continue to educate. And the more people that come out and share their stories, the more people realize like, oh, yeah, hey, this isn't really that big of a deal. Uh, a lot of people have this, you know. So that's the approach we're using. And uh, the idea, we've invested a lot in kids because with that mindset that in 10 years, these kids are going to be the influencers. Yeah. You know, they're going to be the ones who are going to, you know, uh, dictating what happens on social media. And they already kind of do anyway now, but even more so, <laughs> uh, you know, what's social media, what's the culture going to be like? And that's, that's what's going to happen. That's, that's what's going to change. It's an investment in time. It's not going to happen overnight. And we're never going to get everybody over to our side. That mental health is an important part of our fabric of our being. but. Um, it's not going to stop me from trying. Yeah, absolutely. Me either. And I think for, I can speak for all educators as well, that we recognize that it's an, it's essential. Um, it's essential for, you know, for learning, but just for being, being a happy, healthy human being. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, and that's the world of education and why we're here too. Um, Okay, so I, I think, I don't know if you see anything that I might have missed before we close this out and I ask you to share your contact information. Um, I know we talked a lot about um, suicide and risk, the risk factors, um, some of the signs and symptoms that we w might be watching for, a lot of the changes in behavior and that question, are you thinking about killing yourself? Like I said, I have to say it more and more. And mm -hmm. it's just like, talking about things more and more because then it makes us not afraid of them yeah. um, or not feel uncomfortable yeah. um and that there are a ton of resources out there for us and you're working there, on some there of there really are yes 
and you have and are working on some amazing things um, for us to be able to utilize as well for for youth. Am I missing anything? No, nope, I just want to finish the story I started with. Um, I want to tell everybody what happened to that four-year-old girl that saved my life. Um, I got to dance with her at her uh, dance recital, uh, you know, the father-daughter dance when she was in dance in school, and I took her to her first job, and I taught her how to drive. And I was a shoulder for her when she uh, broke up with a boyfriend, a shoulder to cry on, and I saw her graduate from high school, and now she's uh, a charge nurse. Uh, she's an RN at the Mayo Clinic Surgical Center. She's 22 years old, and she's uh, saving lives yet to this day. So I'm incredibly proud of her, and I'm um, so happy that I made that decision uh, uh, that I did. And um, what I did uh, to kind of remind myself of things is, I don't know if you can see that very well or not. I see. Is it promise? It says promise. Yeah, it says promise on there uh, with a semicolon for the I. A semicolon uh, is a, a punctuation that a writer uses when their story's not and the sentence is not over, the story's not over yet. And it's a big movement. And the word I got, promise, I put it there because that's where I put the knife. And it's a promise that I'll always stay on my meds. It's a promise that I'll ask for help when I need it. And it's a promise that tomorrow's going to be a better day. And so whenever I get tough, uh, things get hard, that's where I go to. So, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You should be incredibly proud of both your daughter and yourself. And just the sheer impact that you may not see, but that you have on everybody. And so thank you for all of the work that you are doing. My pleasure. Um, so Mark, if people are, um, are interested in maybe yeah. jumping on board with the Beacon Project, depending on when they watch or listen to this, or if they just want to reach out and pick your brain or gather resources or ideas or whatever it might be, what might be the best way for them to contact you or get a hold of you? Well, there's, there's really two ways. Uh, we have um, a Facebook page, uh, The Beautiful Mind Project, uh, easy to find. Uh, you can email me at info at thebeautifulmindproject.org. Um, those are probably the two best ways. I uh, did want to give you information about our urgent care program for mental health. Uh, so for uh, those uh, who are in central Minnesota, we have eight locations right now across central Minnesota. And you can go to uh, projecturgentcare.com and actually request an appointment right online. Um, so if you have a student who, yeah, they're not suicidal, they're not thinking of harming themselves, but you know what, they really need somebody sooner than later, projecturgentcare.com. Within 60 seconds, you'll be completed the thing and a request, an appointment request will be made and we'll uh, get you set up within 24 hours. So our, our terminology for that is uh, uh, we encourage folks to get a checkup from the neck up in 24 hours or less. So, uh, so those are the best ways to, to reach us. Uh, uh, Thank you. More information on anything, pick my brain, whatever. I'll, I'll give you everything I got. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, all right. So to close this out, thanks for taking the time to join our Learning Minnesota discussion with Mark Venher on the topic of suicide prevention and mental health. Don't forget to visit our site, www.learningminnesota.com, for additional resources on this particular topic and more videos in our resource library.